So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter 12 or 13, right at the beginning of 13 is where we will be. Um, But if you remember our series in Exodus, all the way back in October when we started in the first sermon, we established these two principles, if you will, that will be on the screen. God is working a good plan built on his promises, and that plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. The reason why I mentioned the first sermon is because if you remember, we talked about how that, that the nation of Israel at that time, Joseph and his sons, was 70 people. 70 people that 430 years go by that they are in slavery. And now we are right at the part in the text where they're about to cross the, um, the Jordan there and... or cross into the promised land, and it's about two million people. So we said in the first week that they had thought God was going to do this thing different. He had promised them a land, but 70 people over the course of 430 years of not going the way we thought, God has now delivered on his promise, and we'll see that in our text today. So we'll be reading from chapter 13. We're kind of covering last week. We covered the two uh, two weeks on the plagues. This week, we're going to cover the exodus, the people leaving Egypt in two weeks, this being the first. And we're going to read a passage from chapter 13. This is what it says in Exodus 13. I'll read from 2, verse 2 through 16, and that'll kind of be our center point, And then we'll go back a little bit and forward a little bit next week from that point. This is what God's word says. It says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. You're going to see that phrase four times, a strong hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, And the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be a, to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into that land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when it is time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. By the strong hand, 
the Lord brought us out of Egypt. With that, I would ask that you just pray. Pray that God would speak through his word, and uh, we will just join in that together, listening to God this morning. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. Father, this is a, a thing that we ought to remember in this text that's being fleshed out. The gospel is seen here that that we remember what you did by saving the people from Egypt and remember that you then sent your son, the promised Messiah, to deliver us once and for all from sin, saving us, the body of Christ, for which I pray that we would never forget but remember what you've done in delivering us by your strong hand. And I pray that we would celebrate that now as we listen and worship and that you would just uh, speak your words through me. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So uh, for many of us, I had joked with my son that I would title this message, The Slave Girl Behind the Treadmill, but we didn't go that route for my inaccurate reading of scripture. But I want to bring you up to speed for where we've been. We covered the 10 plagues, and so this journey has gone from the calling Moses in Exodus. God shows up at the burning bush, and he reveals his plan to Moses to choose him, to use him to speak to Pharaoh. This dialect, this narrative goes on, and Pharaoh and Moses are having this back and forth encounter. Moses is saying, this is who the Lord is, Yahweh, I am who I am. And he says, let my people go. Let the children of Israel go. I want to deliver them. Pharaoh says yes, then he says no, then he says yes, then he says no. And so God brings these judgments, these plagues on him, ending with the 10th plague, the death plague, by killing all the firstborn in the land. It's at this point where we find ourselves in the story that God is preparing this nation of Israel, his people, to journey. I think I said the Jordan, that's later. The Red Sea is what they're going to cross, and God is going to deliver them. He's making a distinction He's setting a people apart because they're different. Now, I watched a lot of movies when our kids were younger. Um, We watched a lot of movies with them, and one of those movies was The Incredibles, all right? So if you've seen The Incredibles, I see some nodding like The Incredibles. You know what the story is about. These ex-superheroes, they're retired. They kind of go into hiding this, um, this couple, and they end up having kids, and they have a family, but they can't really let people know that they have these superpowers, And so one in particular, Violet, is the teenage daughter in the movie, and she has this sense about her. She's a teenager, so she's off the wall with her emotions anyways. Yeah, you know who you are, and you know who you were when you were there too. But she's this teenager that's just really uncomfortable in her own skin. And her big deal is she has this superpower to be invisible, which is ironic because she wants to be invisible. She feels different than anybody else. And she's just screaming through the movie, I just want to be normal. I just want to have a normal family. And I thought about that this week when I, when I came to this text because I know that I can relate. And I, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you know that you can relate to that feeling of just different. When we walk out these doors... We walk into a world that we just feel like a fish out of water. This world is changing, becoming more liberal in the sense of like not caring about what God says or his rules or his ways. And, and people that don't care about God, we just feel like this is just different and we don't fit in. And the pull to want to be normal is great. We just want, which is why we try to do that in many ways. We try to fit in and God says, you don't fit in. I've drawn you out 
for purpose. You don't fit in. And so I just say this, if you come here today and it's a real struggle to live in the world and you feel like sometimes you're lonely, you don't have friends, that's a real thing. And I would say that's part of following Jesus. It's a good thing if you feel like that. If you come in here today and you say, I feel pretty normal out there, then that's a heart check of maybe you following Jesus correctly or incorrectly. And so I identify with this character, Violet, that she just wants to be normal, but she's not. She was set apart in this family, in this way. And so the children of Israel are set apart. And I start here, if we, if you belong to Christ, you are different. You are set apart. You're not of the world. You're not normal. Nor did God design you to fit in as such. And so today I just want to make two simple points. And they both start with C, so it's going to be really easy. All right? And the first one is found right away in verse 2, which we read. When, when the Lord said to Moses, I want you to consecrate, or consecrated. Say that with me. Consecrated. What is consecrated? Consecrated is simply to take something that is ordinary and set apart to make it sacred. And so God essentially does that with the nation of Israel. And God fulfills that in Christ with the gospel. When he takes people who are ordinary and he plucks them from death to life and he delivers and saves them and he says, you are no longer ordinary, you are mine. You are now a child of God. You are set apart. You are consecrated. And what he did was he started to establish in the nation of Israel this principle of being consecrated or holy and set apart. And he instructs Moses then to go and consecrate all the firstborn to himself. But why? Remember who Israel is. God had referred to Israel as his firstborn son. He said, these are my treasured people, my treasured possession. And God tells Pharaoh through Moses, you need to let my firstborn son, Israel, go free. And if not, what was the punishment? You will lose your firstborn son. And so God, through the death plague, delivers on that, treating Israel as such, consecrating. Now, what is the deal with the whole firstborn principle? I wish I had more time to unpack this. But in the ancient days, the firstborn, the whole line goes through them. All the inheritance was to the firstborn. All the family name, all of the wealth, all of the position was through the firstborn son. So it's a big deal. And I guess in the ancient days, Jewish families would know this, that everything's going through the firstborn son. And so God says, essentially, these are my firstborn people, and all of it belongs to me. I'm going to set the nations through this people group, this Israel. And so God established with this a law. And you can see as you understand that, like God is establishing things here in verses 11 through 15. It says, when the Lord brings you in to the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord that all that opens the first, all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males, every firstborn of a donkey you shall dream, redeem with the lamb, or if you won't, you have to break his neck. He's saying, like, you need to do this. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son comes and asks you, which we're asking today, like, why did they do that? And sons, why did we do that? What does it mean? You shall say by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice. This is in response to what God is establishing. 
I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the, redeem, opened the womb from all, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. God was establishing a law to remember who they were because of what he had done. And so he establishes this by way of law. This is what you're going to do. And I would say it this way, set apart people given to God, give to God. It's a first fruits principle. God is establishing this here. Now, I'm not going to go on to all these ways of the 10% tithing, but I will mention it by way of this, is that that God established the principle of tithing to say, this belongs to me. It was this stewardship way. Now, I practice that in my life now as a way to say, God, everything you give me belongs to you because I'm not my own. And so I practice that, and I would say I'm blessed to practice that and have been blessed to practice that, but it's a heart issue. It's not giving money or tithing by first fruits. It's a heart issue that says, God, you own everything anyways. I want to set this aside. I want to consecrate this to you in order to remember all that you've done for me and who I am. If you claim Christ and have truly been born again by the Spirit, you belong to God. There is no alternative. You were purchased, bought by the blood, bought at a price, saved, redeemed. You are not your own. The Bible, the New Testament speaks of this language. Paul, you're going to see this in many of his writings. And probably the most like clear verse of that, this umbrella term is Romans 14.8. If you know that verse, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Did anybody in there see a third category? No? You're paying attention. We live to the Lord if we're alive. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. If you know Jesus, you are not yours. You belong to God. Now that's a, oh, culturally, does that mean I get to do what I want though? Like, I mean, really, like, I have some freedom. You sure do, but you're not your own. You are free to do as you think you are, but there's not really an, another option. In our flesh, we fight against this, this idea of being consecrated. We want to do what we want to do. And when I say, like, I am not my own, that means that I have a king that tells me what to do, and I don't get to decide how I feel or what I want to do about this or that. That's what that's about. We fight against this in our flesh, But we actually, in the irony of what God has done, we're actually more free if you live under that umbrella. Like we think we'll be more free if we do it our way, but we have a God who knows us, who created us, and who knows how we ought to live. And we're actually freer to live more faithfully and fully and joyfully if we live under his rule and reign. He knows us best. And so consecration is the mark that we're different. And God says, you're mine. And so what he's doing here, I know this is hard to understand, like why is God doing all this? He's establishing a memory for these people. Remember who you are, what I did, and how I created you, and that it's from my strong hand, which leads to the second point. It's commemorate. Everybody say that? Commemorate. God takes his consecrated people, and he establishes these commemorations. He's about to establish all these festivals and feasts and laws, all that stuff that you and I struggle to read through in the Old Testament because he's taking his consecrated people and he's building in these commemorations. He says, I want you to do these things so that you remember. 
And when you have kids who say, why do we do this this way? So you tell them. And when you come to church with your little ones now and they say, hey, why do we take the Lord's Supper this way? Or why do we do this? Then you tell them because God, because God has delivered us with a strong hand. And he's starting to establish all of these commemorations, these laws, these festivals to remember what God has done. If you go back to verse 3, you start to see that. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. No leavened bread shall be eaten. He's starting to establish one of these feasts or famines in this case from leavened bread, but unleavened bread. Today in the month of Abib, you're going out, and I'm skipping down to uh, verse 7. Unleavened bread shall, shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. Why? And it should be a memorial, frontlet between your eyes, marks on your hands, law of the Lord in your mouth. And he's establishing this, this feast for them to eat only unleavened bread. And to understand this, you need to go back actually to verse 33 in chapter 12. So we're going, I said we go back a little bit. When the Egyptians left, it says in verse 33 there, the Egyptians were urgent with people, with the people to send them out of the land in haste. So this is happening really quickly. The firstborns die, the plague, and it says they leave in haste. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. Everything happened really quickly. And God is doing something in all of this. They couldn't even let the dough rise for this to be like for them to be delivered. They left quickly. Now I don't know about you, but I love bread. Some of you are nodding. I love donuts. I love white bread. I love all kinds of fluffy sweet breads. Do you know those little Hawaiian rolls? Oh yeah, just like some of you are like, oh, getting hungry. All right, so I'm going to like have you on a short leash here. But I love bread and I love it and, and I try to get rid of it so much. And friends, I love, I am more of an olive garden breadstick guy than I am like a plain cracker guy. And you know what I'm talking about. And so this is one of those moments where you could see like generations of kids being like, Dad, Mom, where's the bread? And they're like, it's crackers all week. But God is doing something in this. You have to remember why he's asking this to happen. He's setting forth a reminder. When the kids are asking, Dad, where, where are the donuts and, and the, the fluffy white bread that's really, really not good for you? And we're, no, nope, seven days... And here's why we're eating this, because we're remembering what God did in delivering us and redeeming us. And he saved us so quickly, we didn't even have time for the dough to rise. So we remember. God establishes this in this way. You would think, you know, this people is going to journey. They're going to leave Egypt from everything they have. And so it would make sense that they would want to take provisions, that they would start to gather. And if you and I were leaving on this kind of journey, we probably would grab everything off our shelves. But they left so quickly, they don't even have time to do these things. And this, this calls us back to our story. This kind of idea that God is establishing is pulling us back to this idea that we're consecrated. Because when we forget that we're consecrated, we do start feeding our impulses, and going after the things we want. Now look at the meal itself. There are deep implications here. If you think about how bread is made, it's made with leaven or yeast, right? 
It's actually made from something that's starting to like decompose or sour. You see, when flour or grain is left out in moisture, it actually just starts to produce like an acid and it ferments and it starts to become destroyed, if you will. So if you leave that out, it's going to over time decay and become rancid. And it took days for, for this to happen. But back then they realized that, and this is going to start to make a lot of sense if you don't know this in the New Testament, the way that it goes at this idea of leaven. They started to realize if we take a batch of bread and we take one clump or one lump from that and set it aside overnight, we can actually use that as an agent to start the rising process in the new dough. So they took a lump and they put it with the new batch and it becomes the leaven that, that was set out, that they, they took overnight, and they, they, this the sour bread was this agent or starter of the new loaf. Now, if you have sourdough bread, you know why this practice is still done. It's sourdough because they take that, this, this fermenting process is already starting to happen, and they put it into a new batch. And once you see this picture, you start to realize why leaven in the New Testament becomes a symbol of sin taking this old, there's so many implications here, gospel implications and throughout, but you see this old leaven, this, this practice of taking something and, and putting it into something that's new and sacred, if you will, in regards to that illustration, how a little sin can contaminate a whole life. We just read, Steve just read about that from 1 Corinthians. So the modern day application of the church, as Jesus walked and he saw the leaven of the Pharisees, All the Pharisees' goal was to live a holy life. They were set apart because their cup on the outside was cleaned by their religion, right? But Jesus comes along and says, I see the leaven. The inside of your cup is dirty. Your heart's not right. And then he goes to the church and Paul says, you need to take the sin out of your lives, even that person who is living an unrepentant life, and remove them from the church body because that will spoil the whole batch. And so it is with our own lives. God says, you are my people. You can't be going towards sin that will spoil your whole life. And so he's about to establish all these laws that will commemorate both the deliverance, but keep them a set-apart and holy people. Consecrated people living holy lives, living unto God and fleeing from sin. God says, you're my people. You're different. You're not like the world. You're set apart. And so he wants to establish these rules for the church, just as he did for the nation of Israel with the Passover. And God sets apart these rules to make his people clean. That's why he didn't allow outsiders to partake in the meal. If you go back and read the section there right before what we read in chapter 13, it says in verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him or marked him according to the people. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. There's no exception here. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let his males be circumcised or that marker of inclusion. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. There's no exception. Think about the way that we take the Lord's Supper. We say it every time. This is a meal for believers, people who have been delivered by the strong hand of the Lord. And if you're outside of that, you shouldn't take it. 
The nation of Israel was told to do this, to commemorate what God has done. And when you take the Lord's Supper, not having truly been saved from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't even know what that's like. Like, you're not saying anything because it's a deliverance meal. It's a remembrance of the deliverance that Christ has given us in our lives from sin. And so you see the parallel of these two things. As God's people, we are called to this high standard of being set apart and consecrated. We do it not to celebrate our own greatness in keeping the law, but because we want to show who God is. And this all aims at this. So everything we do flows from an acknowledgement of how we understand being consecrated and then how we set forth to remember that. You are a consecrated people. I am a consecrated people. Remember that. And so the applications that I would make from those two points are just simply this. Are you leading a holy life if you truly know Jesus? An unleavened life. Some of us could probably think of areas that we've taken an old lump and put it into the new. And Paul will tell you later in Corinthians, he said, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. And then all the language of the New Testament, flee from sin. Don't do that. And some of you might be even thinking about some sin that you keep running to. And God says, I want that out of your life. That needs to be gone. You need to repent and flee from that thing. Friends, this is all about answering this question. Why do we who know Christ do what we do? In every action that leads us back to him, we do it because of his strong hand and deliverance and an awareness that he has saved. We know that. When you realize what God has done, when you realize why he starts to establish all these commemorations, when I see people in the church that are growing and they're growing in Christ, it's because they realize what God has done in the gospel. When I saw Kyle stand up here and I just smiled as he presented because God is growing him to understand and know and want to teach God's word and he's just growing him, it's simply not because of Kyle. It's because of what Kyle understands about what God has done. And he wants to set forth that whole thing in his life because his heart starts to change, which is why, why God establishes this whole idea of put it right between your eyes, a frontlet. I'll talk about that in a second. Right? I want your focus to be there. Remember that. Mark your hands. Have it come from your mouth. It starts to change your heart, your priorities, and your family. I got this fleshed out by example. Even this week was a really difficult week because one of my best friends, my best man in his wedding, his best man in my wedding, my best college buddies, stage four stomach, stage four liver cancer, seven kids out of the blue, no warning signs, get the call from his wife. And I just like, oh. and I spent the time with him at the hospital this week. And one thing came to mind because they know Jesus, they're facing this head on and it's changed their whole perspective on what would be hopeless and devastating news. And it's hard and it's sad, but they're facing this because their lives have been changed. They know what God has done. This whole thing stems from the way they walk through this. And I was just amazed at their faith in this. He told me, he said, I'm not scared. He said, it's horrible. And I have all these, you know, myself and him and all these feelings of emotion for their family and all this stuff. I mean, 40, almost 41 years old. And this is all crashing down around him. He says, I'm not scared. I know like what my God is and who he is and where I'm headed. And it changes and shapes everything about us. And so God says, because you're my people, establish ways that you remember. And he's established them through his word. And I would ask you this, are you keeping the feasts and festivals? 
And I'm not saying this in a Gentile culture of a coming from a Jewish faith. I'm asking you as a Gentile, someone who knows Christ, are you keeping the feasts and festivals? And what I mean by that, are you commemorating what God has done? Do you have markers? They call these phylacteries the phylacteries, the pieces of parchment paper that they wrote um, the, on the little verses, the four verses, two from Exodus and uh, 13 in verse 9, and then 16, and then two from Deuteronomy. But they became a practice of putting them in this little box and putting them really around their hands and on their eyes because they wanted to remember. Are you remembering? And what does this look like practically? You're saying, well, no, I, do you want me to like pull little parchment strips and write, you know, verse 9 and 16 and like strap it to my forehead? Is that what you're asking me? No. I'm saying, are you practicing the scriptures, reading them daily, going back and remembering what God has done for you? Are you practicing life in the body, commemorating when we gather? That's what we're doing here. I just prayed that in our membership class this morning. I prayed that we would come together as a body and just celebrate what God has done in worship. We come together as a church because we are commemorating what Jesus Christ has done for us by the cross and by 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 his resurrection and defeating sin and establishing for us a way that we could know God again and that he would come back for his people? Are you praying and going to God every morning and saying, God, thank you for my life? You and I get so caught up, we don't practice the feasts and the festivals anymore because we just go through life. And God's saying, I want you to remember. Do you know how many times it says remember in the scriptures? I don't either, but if you figure it out, it's a lot God says it all the time because we're forgetful people. And he says, you need to remember what I've done for you. You need to remember. We do this in church life. We do this at Christmas. We do this at Easter and celebrating the resurrection. All established as a commemoration that we are consecrated people. And friends, when you leave here, there's a verse on the wall, intentional at that, right above the office area there, right when you leave. And it was intentional for a reminder In 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are a consecrated people set apart. God wants the leaven out. He wants the sin out of our lives. We are going to be struggling with sin forever, but he wants us to flee from it knowing who we are. And he says, establish ways that you can commemorate that. Get in your Bible and pray every morning and say, thank you, God, for your strong hand of deliverance. Friends, this world is not our home. We are not like Violet. We are not normal. We're different. That's who God called us to be, consecrated, ordinary people. Nothing important on our own and in us, but by the grace of God set apart to a holy and incredible God to go and live different. So friends, whatever you leave here today, I want you to make a conscious effort to look at that verse on the wall. Whatever I go out in this world week after week to do, whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. I am set apart, consecrated, set apart a holy people to remember who I am and what God did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your strong hand of deliverance for the people of Israel that one day would be formed into a nation and a kingdom, and the prophets would come and prophesy about the true king that would come, your son, Jesus Christ, to rule the nations and to give what the law could never do completely, 
to give freedom and grace because he lived it perfectly with no sin. He lived a righteous life and then died a sinner's brutal death so that he could be our substitute, our lamb. He could be that blood that was spread on the doorposts. And Father, you provided that perfect sacrifice for us by your grace so that we could know you. Father, you were always authoring a story ever since the garden when man fell away from you to bring us back to be your people. And you established a consecrated people through the nation of Israel and you have established that through the fulfillment of the church. Father, may we know who we are and may we remember how we ought to live because we look back and see what you have done. Father, I know that we all have different stories of how we came to faith in Christ. I pray that we would not get lost in this life of wandering. We would go back there and remember what you did when you saved us and redeemed us and set our course towards you. Father, I praise you that you are a redeemer and that it is by your strong hand and I pray that we would live a life that's marked by that consecration that that has those frontlets between our eyes, that has those marks on our hand, that everything we see, we say and do because it belongs to you, that we're not our own. And so, Father, when we leave this place today, that it might be for your glory. That means if we're working in some boring secular job, it's not a boring secular job because you've called an ordinary person, set us apart and put us as a missionary in that place. Father, whatever we do, whether we're in our home taking care of children, you have set us apart in that place to bring glory to you, to train and teach our kids. Father, if we're in a position of leadership and influence, keep us from sin and from distraction and temptation to bring glory to your name and lead others towards your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray, I pray, I pray that if there is one who doesn't know you, that today, by your strong hand, you would deliver them, that they would know who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for them, for their sin, and then that sin needs a punishment, death, and that Jesus took that on himself for us, that they would give their life wholly to you, and today, you would consecrate them as your own. May you be glorified. We praise you that you are our helper, that you, by your power, can save us from all kinds of sin and temptation. And Father, that we would desire to live holy lives for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said. I want to send you out with that verse that I read, that you look at whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Go and celebrate and testify about the great name of Jesus. Amen. And no Olive Garden breadsticks this week. Have a blessed day and go in peace. You are sent. Thank you.